The following sermon, entitled Adorning the Gospel with Godliness, was preached on the evening of March 13, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open the Word of God this evening to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we will read the chapter. The text for this evening's sermon is the second half of verse 10. Titus 2, this is the inspired and infallible Word of our God. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for this evening's sermon is verse 10b, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For some strange reason, In the history of the church, there has been somewhat of a debate about what is more needful. Doctrine or godliness? Theology or practical application? Orthodoxy or piety? What is more important? And I say again, strangely, there has been conflict throughout the history of the church over that question. So that you have some on one side arguing, well, of course, doctrine is what's most important. Doctrine is everything. What's most needful, what's most important for the church is that we maintain our orthodoxy. 
that we defend the truth against every lie, against every heresy out there. And over against that, others have said, but what's doctrine without godliness? What's most important for the church is the way we live our lives. It's Christian living that should be received the, the focus and the attention. What's most needful is our piety and our practice. That in a nutshell is the debate that has raged throughout the history of the church. And as a pastor, I wonder how much that debate is found right here in Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. So that if we put that question to this congregation, what's more important, doctrine or godliness? Perhaps we would have some on either side contending for their respective position. Insofar as that's true of us, that makes this passage of Scripture extremely important. Because this passage, Titus 2, verse 10, and really this book as a whole, sets us straight. There is no conflict between the two. It's not one is more important than the other. And that's what this particular passage has to teach us this evening. As it talks about the importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. It emphasizes that we need both. Both are important. And it even teaches us the relationship between doctrine and godliness. How godliness is what serves as a sort of decoration for our doctrine. It's an ornament that makes it all the more beautiful. And exactly because this is so important that we get this straight, the elders determined that this ought to be the theme for our upcoming family visitation season. As a church, as families, we must have a zeal, a love, a commitment for both doctrine and godliness. And insofar as we have emphasized the one to the neglect of the other, then we stand in need of correction. So the theme for this evening's sermon is adorning the Gospel with godliness. Adorning the Gospel with godliness. First, we look at what we are to adorn. Second, at how we are to adorn it. And then third, why we adorn it. Adorning the Gospel with godliness. What, how, and why. What are we to adorn? Well, very simply, the Gospel. Or, to put it in terms of this passage, we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the language Paul uses here in verse 10. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And what a phrase that is. What an expression. The doctrine of God our Savior. Six little words. But yet there is so much packed into them. So that if we take these six words, the doctrine of God our Savior, and begin to unpack them, we see there's beautiful and rich truths that are set forth in here. That if we meditate on the, these words, if we turn them over in our minds, we 
see afresh the glorious news of the Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. And this phrase certainly points us to our need for Christ. Because this phrase has something to teach us about our sinfulness and our fallen condition because it's talking about the doctrine of God our Savior. And you understand that if sin were not that big of a deal, then we would not need one who is called God our Savior. You see, if sin itself is not all that bad, if the consequences for sin are not all that dreadful, if the misery of sin is not so terrible, then we could save ourselves. Or we could look to some finite Savior in order to deliver us. But the fact that we need one who is called God our Savior, well, that speaks volumes about the seriousness of our sinful fallen condition. It tells us sin is a big deal. It tells us that the consequences for sin are terrible to the extreme. It tells us our misery on account of sin is absolutely awful. And that our plight on account of our sinfulness was hopeless. For if we need one who is God our Savior, in order to deliver us, it means that there was a an infinite gulf between us and God. And that there was no possible way for us to ever bridge that. For us to ever span it. And that the only possibility for salvation is that God Himself makes that bridge. If the cure, if the remedy for sin is God our Savior, not just that He Himself does it, but He must have His own blood shed for our salvation. That means the disease was incurable. That means there was no way we could get out of this condition. Do you see how the very wording Paul uses here points us to the seriousness of our sin? We need one who is God, our Savior, on account of our sin. But not only does it set before us the seriousness of our sin, this phrase also emphatically sets before us the good news of the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And included in that is that our Savior is in fact divine. Because we're talking about God our Savior. And now I suppose you could interpret that to mean that well, it's the triune God who saves us. There's truth to that. For it's the Father who in eternity who has chosen us to be His people, who has set His love upon us. It's the Son who came into this world to accomplish our salvation by His death on the cross. And it's the Spirit who takes what Christ has earned and efficaciously and irresistibly applies it unto us. Yes, the triune God saves us. But I do not believe that's the point being made here when the Apostle Paul by inspiration speaks of God our Savior. The point is that our Savior Jesus Christ is Himself God. He is the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us so that we could behold His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And what an astounding thing that the Most High would come down to save us. As one preacher put it, quote, it is the best news that was ever published among the sons of men that He whom we have offended has Himself become our Savior. End quote. It's exactly because our Savior Jesus Christ is God that He has accomplished our salvation. He is God our Savior. That is, He did not just make His best attempt to save us. He didn't just come and try to save us. No, He accomplished it. And He accomplished it in such a way that our salvation is not a matter of Him coming down into this world to tell us how we all save ourselves. It's not a matter of Him coming to help us save ourselves or even make salvation possible if only we would accept Christ by our own free will. Because none of that does justice to this phrase, the doctrine of God our Savior. That phrase must mean He sovereignly and efficaciously accomplishes this salvation. He leaves no part of the work undone or incomplete so that He could truly say to God, it is finished. Because He's God our Savior. And having accomplished our salvation, He reveals this doctrine to us. That's the third part of what's all packed into this phrase. It reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. It points us to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that all this has been revealed to us because we're talking about the doctrine of God our Savior. The teaching of God our Savior. And now, that aspect of this phrase, the doctrine, the teaching certainly reminds us that this Gospel is all about Jesus Christ. He's the content of it. It's all about Him. So that if you take the whole of God's Word and the good news of the Gospel and compress it down as tightly and compactly as you can, you get this phrase. You get the doctrine of God our Savior. If you wanted to press it down still further and boil it down to two words. That doctrine is Christ crucified. It's Jesus only. It's all about Him. So that any teaching, any doctrine that's going to be faithful to this Word is one that continually and repeatedly proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Because Jesus Christ is the content of this doctrine. But more than that, when Paul speaks of the doctrine of God our Savior, he's not just talking about the fact that Christ is the content of it. This also includes the fact that He is the author of it. For we can think about it in the other sense of the word, the doctrine of God our Savior in the sense that this doctrine finds its source in God our Savior. He's the one who then reveals it to us, discloses it to us, makes it known unto us. It has its source 
in Him. And it points to Him. It's all about Him. Exactly because He is the one doing the pointing. He's the one revealing this glorious message unto His people. So do you see how lovely this phrase is? Do you see what a glorious statement this is that Paul makes here when he speaks of the doctrine of God our Savior? It's a reminder to us that there's no other doctrine in all the world like this one. And thus, this is a reminder to us that we have good reason to prize this doctrine. To hold it near and dear to our hearts. To be ready and willing to defend it. And to cling to it until the day that we die recognizing that it's this doctrine that's going to dispel the darkness of that dread hour. Is this doctrine of God our Savior important to you? That's a question worth dwelling on for a few moments tonight. Because yes, this passage is ultimately about adorning this Gospel. But we are never going to be inclined to adorn it. Unless our hearts are filled with love for this God who is our Savior. And a love for His doctrine. So the question is, is this important to us? It was important to the Apostle Paul. And that comes out here in this book as a whole. When we read the book that is Paul's letter to Titus, we see an emphasis regarding the importance of right doctrine. We see that especially in chapter 1 for Example, when Paul's talking about the qualifications for elders, he says in verse 9 of chapter 1 that they need to be men holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. That is, an office bearer must be one who holds to, who clings to, and embraces this faithful word that he's been taught. And not just that he holds to it, he needs to be equipped to to use it, to wield it, because he must be able by this sound doctrine to exhort others. We see the same emphasis in the verses that follow when Paul reminds us about all the false teachers that are always arising throughout church history. For example, he says in verse, he speaks in verse 10 of the many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. The end of verse 11, he says that they are those that they teach things with they, which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And it's over against the, the presence of these false teachers that call Paul calls Titus to defend the truth, to defend this doctrine of God our Savior. That's the beginning of verse eleven, whose mouths must be stopped. Verses thirteen and fourteen. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Paul here is emphasizing the importance 
of a right theology, of having sound doctrine. And I trust you recognize this is not unique to the book of Titus. We see this in most of Paul's epistles. We see this emphatically in what was probably the first epistle, inspired epistle that he ever wrote from a chronological point of view, namely the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is really at the heart and center of it, a defense of the doctrine of God our Savior. This was important to the Apostle Paul. Is it important to us? Or, have we succumbed to the thinking that what really matters in the church is how we live our lives? That what God is interested in most is that we keep His commandments. That we live a life of prayer. And as for that doctrine, well, people really ought to just stop quibbling over it. They should just stop fighting about it. All that really matters is that you believe the Bible, that you confess that Jesus Christ is Savior, and that's enough. Why do we have to fight about it all the time? Such a viewpoint, such thinking is very prevalent in the broader church world around us. But, beloved congregation, such thinking, such a one-sided thinking is dangerous. Because what this passage of Scripture is reminding us is the importance of sound doctrine and a commitment to it, a love for it, a, a zeal for it. Yes, to be sure, piety is important and we'll talk about that in the second point. But when you survey church history and examine the various pietistic movements that have arisen in the church of Jesus Christ, so that the focus becomes entirely on how we live our lives, what you see when you analyze those is not good. Because they quickly devolve so that the thinking among those pietistic movements is that what separates me, what distinguishes me from others, is my life of obedience, my good works, and not the blood of Jesus Christ, which actually distinguishes us. And what is more, in these pietistic movements where all the focus is on Christian living to the exclusion of doctrine, what you see is that the focus is not just on the law of God, but the external obedience to the law of God. So that it's a, a pharisaistical view of obedience and law-keeping that comes to prevail. And finally, what's also included in these movements is that the emphasis quickly falls on living this way by one's own strength. So that in the end, what takes place is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is set aside. It's minimized at best. And none of that is good. It's not good when the church fails to see the importance of doctrine because doctrine is what we say about God. And what we say about God is enormously important. Doctrine is the foundation for the Christian life. 
It's the foundation for our worship. It's the foundation for our unity. It's the foundation for our experience of salvation. And thus doctrine, right theology, orthodoxy must be important to us as a church and as families. And that means when a sermon is preached, that's primarily doctrinal. When a sermon is preached that enters into polemics and shows what's wrong with different errors, we must not tune out. Instead, we're to listen attentively to those sermons. And what's more, as families, we should be studying theology. We should be concerned about understanding these things for ourselves. Reading good reformed literature that sets these truths before us. This means discussing these things among ourselves in a proper, edifying manner. But talking about a right theology and the importance of it. And that extends down to our homes and our families so that we're teaching our children sound doctrine. Not just that they get it all right, but teaching them ultimately to love it. To embrace it with the heart. Because again, we're talking about the doctrine of God our Savior. And when we love it, when we're committed to it, then we will also have a desire to adorn this doctrine. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon. How we are to adorn this doctrine of God, our Savior. And here we look at the rest of that phrase Paul speaks not just of the doctrine of God our Savior, but calls us to call servants that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And when Paul uses that word adorn, he's using a word that refers to making something beautiful by decorating it, by putting ornaments upon it. This is in fact the same Greek word from which we get our English word Cosmetics and cosmetics has to do with our physical appearance. And when Paul uses this term, he uses it very deliberately in light of those to whom he is speaking at this point. Recognizing they would understand what he's talking about when he uses this term adorning because he's talking ultimately to servants here. That's the immediate context in verse 9. He says, exhort servants, that is, slaves, to be obedient, and so on. And then that same thought runs all the way through the end of verse 10 so that the they in our phrase, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, it's talking about servants. And again, they would understand what Paul's talking about here because in that day, servants were often responsible for adorning their master or mistress. The servant would be the one to apply the makeup or put on the different decor or ornaments, the jewelry. And likewise, the servant was responsible for 
making the home beautiful, taking care of all the decorations and all the ornaments in the home, making sure they were all tidy and in order. Servants knew what it was to adorn something or someone. And now Paul takes that word and speaking specifically to servants, he says that they are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Not some person, not some thing, but this doctrine. What does that mean? To adorn the doctrine of our God our Savior. The child of God does this by living in such a way so as to make clear that this doctrine has had a transforming effect on his heart and on his life. In other words, one adorns this doctrine when his life is in harmony with the confession that he makes. When his conduct, when his behavior matches the doctrine that he holds to. To be more specific, we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with godliness and good works. In other words, when the believer's life is characterized by sobriety, by honesty, by faithfulness, those good works, those virtues, are like so many jewels that serve as ornaments, that serve as decorations that make not the believer beautiful, but ultimately serve to make the doctrine that he holds to all the more appealing, all the more attractive. In other words, when one believes this doctrine, that individual's faith is going to have fruit, and it's the fruit of his faith that becomes the ornament, that becomes the decoration, that becomes the adornment, whereby the doctrine of God our Savior is made all the more lovely. And Paul calls us to adorn this Gospel of God our Savior in all things, in every aspect of life, and really in whatever station or calling you've been given. And that's what comes out in this context here. Paul, in Titus chapter 2, is speaking to all these different groups and setting forth before them what godliness looks like given their station and calling. The immediate context is for servants. For servants, verse 9, Titus was to exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and please them well in all things. That is, they were to be good, diligent workers so that when they're owner, their master, told them to do something, they, they performed what they were told to do and they, they did it to the best of their ability. Paul goes on to say that they are not to answer again. That is, they're not to talk back to their master. A real problem in that day when you have so many servants who hate their masters and who are so low that they really don't care anymore if they get killed or not. So Paul says that they are not to answer again. They're not to talk back. He says they're not to purloin. In our day, we would say no pilfering. No swiping your owner's goods when he's not looking. No cutting a little bit off for yourself. But instead, being trustworthy as a servant. 
He adds, but showing all good fidelity. That is, being faithful, being loyal as a servant or a slave. And all of that is what leads him to say that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That is, when servants live this way, that obedience, that faithfulness, that trustworthiness is going to become like jewels that bedeck and beautify the Gospel of God our Savior. But it's not just servants that Paul is talking about. But the all different sorts of people all throughout this chapter, he's addressing different individuals. Verse 2, he speaks to the aged men that they be sober, grave, temperate, and so on. Aged women, likewise, that their behavior becometh holiness. The young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, and so on. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. In every one of these ways, these individuals could thereby adorn the doctrine of God their Savior. And I trust you recognize the importance of this for all of us. Because insofar as we fail to live godly lives, rather than adorning the Gospel, we will detract from it. That's clearly implied here. If obedience adorns the Gospel, makes it more beautiful, disobedience is going to detract from that Gospel. It's going to make it ugly in the eyes of the world. And that's not just implied here in verse 10. Paul makes that point more explicitly in verse 5. If we back up to verse 5, he's talking about the young women that they must be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands. Why? That the Word of God be not blasphemed. Verse 10, he states it positively. Verse 5, he states it negatively. This is how you are to live because if you fail to live this way, here's the result. The name of our God is blasphemed. The doctrine of our God our Savior is torn down. It's made less appealing in the eyes of the world around us. So that insofar as this is true of us, if we fail in this respect, we become like the false teachers that Paul talks about here. In chapter 1, verse 16, he speaks of false teachers as those who profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. And we too can become guilty of that very thing. Professing that we know God, that we hold to this doctrine of God our Savior. But by our lives we show otherwise. And it's exactly because it is possible for us to detract from the Gospel that Paul places so much emphasis on a life of obedience. On how we are to live as Christians before the face of our God. And that comes out in his epistles. Paul 
the great defender of the truth, that outstanding missionary and theologian, was concerned about how we live our lives. That comes out here in Titus and how he's weaving practical exhortations in with the the religious doctrines. That comes out in his other epistles where he often has this pattern of using the first part of the book to lay the groundwork to go over all the theology. And then based on that, he moves on in the second half to talking about how this carries over into our lives. What this looks like from a, a practical point of view. And in doing this, he was really following the example of Jesus Christ Himself. Consider for a moment the content of the Sermon on the Mount. And consider the fact that the bulk of that sermon concerns the ordinary affairs of life and how we are to live as citizens of the kingdom. So much so that I wonder at times how much that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, would be criticized if anyone else preached it aside from Jesus Christ. How those who say what we need in the preaching is doctrine, doctrine, and doctrine. If anyone else preaches a Sermon on the Mount, they would probably snub their noses at that sermon. No doubt some, if an ordinary preacher preached that sermon, would say it's a Christless sermon. There's no Gospel in that sermon. But such a view really betrays a lack of understanding regarding preaching and regarding the importance of that practical instruction. The exhortations concerning how we are to live our lives. God gives us that instruction through His Word exactly so that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And thus, we must never fall into the error of thinking that if a sermon is focused on how we are to live our lives and gives all sorts of practical instruction, that that's not much of a sermon. That's a a terrible sermon. And really, we should just walk out on that sermon. Nor may we fall into the error of thinking that so long as I have my theology correct, so long as I'm orthodox, well, then it really doesn't matter how I live my life anyway. And we must certainly not be guilty of thinking that I may behave myself however I want so long as it's supposedly in defense of the truth. And I say that because that mentality has appeared in our churches. Whether you're willing to admit it or not, it's there. And a part of it is taking a beautiful phrase in the Belgian Confession which rightly teaches that the truth is above all 
and twisting that phrase to mean something that it does not mean. The way it's twisted is to mean that because the truth is above all, and if I believe I'm defending that truth, well, everything's fair game because the end justifies the means. And that means, if I believe I'm defending the truth, I can resort to name-calling. means I can publish private, sensitive information on the internet. It means I can disregard established church order and reformed church government. Means I can stop coming to church and worshiping God as He commands me to do because it's all for the sake of the truth. As long as I'm defending the truth, I'm at liberty to act, comport myself in this sinful way. But you recognize how contrary that is to this passage of Scripture? God's Word calls us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things by living a life of godliness, by being zealous for good works, by taking the truths that are set forth in this Word and applying them to how we live our lives so that our lives match the doctrine that we hold to. It's incredibly important that we understand this. And that we understand both at the same time. Because that's what exactly what Paul is getting at here in the book of Titus. We need both an emphasis on right theology and an emphasis on how we live our lives. And it's not just verse 10 of chapter 2. This is how Paul began the book. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. He puts acknowledging the truth right next to godliness and says both are important. He says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, which are in harmony with sound doctrine, that are according to sound doctrine, that are going to adorn this sound doctrine. Teach that, Paul, Titus. And what all of this is showing us is that there is no conflict between doctrine and godliness, between theology and practical application, between orthodoxy and piety. We need both. And every Christian must be zealous for and committed to and in love with both. And that means insofar as some sitting here this evening while listening to the first point of the sermon, we're thinking, yeah, we need doctrine. We need orthodoxy. Preach that! Well, probably what the word you need to hear then is the second point of the sermon. 
And insofar as there were others sitting here this evening who the whole time the second point was being preached were thinking, I'm, were thinking, I'm on team godliness. I'm on team piety. And that's what we need to promote. That's more important than anything else. Well, then what you need is the first point of the sermon. We must be balanced as a congregation. We must be balanced as families. We must be balanced as individual Christians. We need both. And we have good reason to cling to this doctrine of God our Savior and to adorn it. And that brings us to the why. Why we adorn it. And while there are many, many things that could be said here, we will give simply two because both of them can be drawn out of the text or the context. First, there is the motivation. And that very simply is gratitude. Because this doctrine of God our Savior is not some cold, abstract, lifeless doctrine. But it's our salvation. And that comes out from that one little word that we've skipped over thus far. Our. Paul speaks of the doctrine not of God the Savior, but the doctrine of God our Savior. And I trust you all immediately understand the importance of that. This is our salvation we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that the Most High came down into this world to save not just His people, but to save you, child of God. And to save me. This is personal for Paul. And that's why he puts it the way he does. This is the doctrine of God. Our Savior. This is our salvation that we're describing when Paul speaks in verse 14 of Him giving Himself that He might redeem us and purify us. And it's knowing that this is for you. This is for me. That means this is not just something cold and abstract and lifeless, but this is our salvation. And it's exactly for that reason that we have every reason to be thankful. Thankful for this glorious Gospel. We have reason to defend the truth. Reason to be zealous for a life of good works. And to cultivate those godly virtues that serve as so many jewels to bedeck and beautify this Gospel of God our Savior. And really, this is the key. It's understanding that this is our salvation that, that drives both. That drives both the commitment to the truth as well as the Christian living so that you can't have the one without the other. So that first of all is why we are to adorn this doctrine out of thankfulness for this salvation and a desire that our God would thereby be praised. And second, 
The why has to do with the purpose. And the purpose, at least set forth here in this passage, is that we might gain others to Christ. And that comes out when you ask the question, why does Paul tell servants, slaves, to adorn the Gospel? Why does he tell them to live a life of obedience? To not be guilty of purloining? To be faithful to their masters? So that their masters would see there's something different about this Christian slave compared to every other slave I've encountered. There's something unique here about how the slave goes about his work. How about how I can actually trust this person? So that the master begins to wonder what is it that makes this person different? What is this doctrine of God is Savior that He's always talking about. Who is this Savior? I'm intrigued. I'm interested. Tell me something, my servant. That's what Paul has in view. That's what he envisions when he exhorts especially servants, but really all of us, to live this way so that we adorn the Gospel. The Gospel by itself is beautiful, yes, But when it's adorned with godliness, it becomes all the more attractive. And God will use that to bring others to Christ. And that's a reminder to us that this too is a part of the reason why we must live a life of good works. Why we must adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Because others are watching. And our lives will do one of two things. They will either detract from that Gospel, cause those who observe us to think, I want nothing to do with that. Those people are a bunch of hypocrites. Or, by the grace of God, our lives will be this decoration, this ornament. And our trust is that God will use that to bring others to an understanding of the wonder, of the beauty, of the glory of this doctrine of God our Savior. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for this glorious doctrine concerning God our Savior, Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts a deep-rooted commitment for this doctrine. Make us ready and willing to defend it, to fight for it because we love it. And exactly because we love it, work in us also the desire to adorn it with a life of godliness and good works. Apply this Word to our hearts. We pray all this for Christ's sake. Amen.